In today's episode, I talk about my tremendous gratitude for my community. We're going to talk about a new path for the Wisdom Community Podcast and our learning together. And I answer a question from a listener about my own personal connection with God. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Wisdom Community Podcast. I'm Rabbi John Carrier, and I am convinced that the path to a better life lies in seeking wisdom and in seeking community. Are you seeking? Then this is for you, seeker. Greetings, Seeker, and welcome back to the Wisdom Community Podcast, your occasionally daily podcast where we pursue wisdom in community, and my fervent hope is that this helps you build a more meaningful life. I want to kick off this episode, this re-re-re-reboot of the Wisdom Community Podcast with a statement of gratitude for the community that I belong to, and that is Burbank Temple Emmanuel. This past Sunday night, the community honored me with an installation. An installation is uh, what they call it when a new rabbi enters a community and there's a ceremony. They recognize the rabbi as the rabbi of the community that is a kind of spiritual leader and teacher of Torah and occasional uh, staff manager and budget minister, and depending on the community that you're in and what the responsibilities the rabbi has. Uh, I'm in a smaller community, so my role is that of chief cook and bottle washer sometimes. Uh, I have the keys of the building, so I open it up uh, sometimes in the morning and, and often the last one to leave, uh, but that means I get to hang out with people longer, and that's a, that's a fun thing. I will admit that occasionally it's nice when somebody else has the keys to the building. Uh, but I'll, I'll talk about uh, the keys to the building and what that represents uh, at some point, because it's actually a metaphor. But for right now, I just want to say thank you to all the people who are listening who are part of the Burbank Temple Emmanuel community. As I said, an installation often happens when a new rabbi enters a community, and I've been there for two years now. So what can I say? I think when I started the job at Burbank Temple Emanuel. I really hit the ground running. It's a place with tremendous opportunity. Uh, it seen some darker days uh, before I got there. It had actually started to turn it around already, and uh, my role there as rabbi was to just continue that path of growth. Uh, but it's been busy, busy, busy from day one, and it's been tremendously rewarding and exciting for me, but really no time uh, to stop and party too hard. That didn't, didn't prevent us sometimes, I'll tell you. But typically an installation happens uh, two, three months into a rabbi's tenure at a particular institution. Usually, you know, you got to get through the high holidays and then we can celebrate uh, the new rabbi. In this case, uh, it was two years and many, many jokes were made about this. Um, the best one was uh, the mayor of Burbank was there, and he said his secretary told him, hey, are you going to attend the the installation of the new rabbi at Burbank Temple Emmanuel? And he said, the new rabbi? What happened to John? Uh, but no, in fact, I was that new rabbi. He'd known me for a couple of years here in Burbank. And so uh, I'll say that the 
Best marriages often come from long engagements. We've spent a couple of years uh, sizing each other up, me and my kahal, me and my congregation. And it's in some ways sweeter because, you know, everybody who was at that party I knew, right? We were already friends. And if I had been installed right when I got there, nobody would really know me. And I'd make some bloviating speech about my vision for the place before I actually got to know uh, what the vision of the community already was, then I was just helping to implement it, which is which is more the truth than um, me coming in and totally changing the direction. So Uh, I was able to celebrate with people that I'd known for two years and my parents were there, which was awesome. Uh, You know, just like they got to see their boy launched, you know, they got to see their boy get a certificate from the mayor and all sorts of people who've known me for a while come up and say nice things to them about stuff that I've done or ways I've helped them. And, uh, and it was just wonderful all around. So if you're part of the Burbank Temple, Emmanuel Synagogue community. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I'm not often speechless. And for the sake of this podcast, I won't be. um, But there are really no words to describe uh, the gratifying and humbling experience that that was. And if you're listening to this podcast, and you haven't been to Burbank Temple, Emmanuel, I highly recommend you check it out. These folks really know how to take care of each other, really know how to build community. Everybody says they're warm and welcoming. There's not a synagogue website that doesn't promote their community as a warm and welcoming and Hamish place. Um, Burbank Temple Emmanuel or BTEE is the real deal. So I highly recommend you check it out if you're in our neighborhood. Um, If you're not in our neighborhood, nobody's perfect. So uh, that's about enough about that. Just thank you guys. It was a wonderful, wonderful event. and I, I, I couldn't be happier with where I am, the rabbi. Uh, that means I, I, I'd like, I told him I'd like to stay here forever if I can. Uh, as much Torah as I'd like to spread under the world, I'm going to do that with podcasts and videos and things like that. Uh, but my home and my heart are in Burbank, Burbank, California, the media capital of the world. And I guess that includes uh, podcast and YouTube and social media. You heard it here. Now, gratitude accomplished. I mentioned at the head of the show that uh, I was going to describe a new direction for our learning together here. So far in the, I'd say, what, 14 episodes that we have in the can, um, we have talked about a different bits of Jewish wisdom here and there. And right now I want to take a more organized approach. A couple of times I've taught things from a book called Pirkei Avot. This is a uh, a book of Mishnah. It's about 2,000 years old. It's a collection of uh, oral traditions on Jewish law and Jewish practice that surfaced around the year zero uh, of the Common Era. And it's been with us ever since. And it's one of the greatest statements on ethics and right action and a right perspective on the world. It's been tremendously helpful for me. And that's why I've kind of cherry picked some things to teach very often on this podcast. Now, uh, I've decided I'd like us to go through the whole thing together. Not today, <laughs> certainly, because that would take a while. It's like five chapters with a bunch of subheadings. But 
in the last year or so, I've been learning this book with a couple of friends of mine one-on-one. So um, two different people, my friend Gil and my friend Jerry, uh, will sit together, won't all three of us sit together, but I'll sit down with one of them at a time. And we've all gone through um, most or all of Pirkei Avot together. Mishnah by Mishnah, that is, you know, each verse at a time, and we'd read the verse together, and then we would discuss it, and it's been one of the most gratifying learning experiences of my life. Jerry is one of the, uh, if he's not one of the founders of our community, which was founded back in the mid-40s, I'll say, he was uh, very close on the coattails of that founding generation. He's been around a long time, been in Burbank a long time seen just about the entire history of our community, gives me a lot of great perspectives uh, historically on the community that I have the honor of teaching and leading in. And it's a great joy to learn through a wisdom text with one of the wisest people that I know. Uh, speaking of wise people, my friend Gil, uh, young, younger than Jerry, uh, but a very wise person nonetheless, uh, has like an engineering background. I have a finance background. So two very analytical people sitting and parsing these ethical texts and framing them from sort of a more left brain uh, frame of mind has been really interesting, really, really interesting. And now uh, I'd like to do this with you. Unfortunately, we're not sitting in a room together and going back and forth. Nevertheless, uh, I'd like to go through the entirety of Pirkei Avot with you. We're going to do one Mishnah or one uh, small bite-sized unit at a time. And over the course of the next few weeks or months, we will cover the entire thing. In rabbinic study, this is a process known as Bikiyut. Bikiyut is where you take a corpus of text and you study the entire thing uh, rather kind of quickly, you know, in sort of a surface level so that you get an idea of the breadth of the entire text. Um, it's kind of like an overview course, if you will. Uh, the opposite of this is Eun, where you'll take one small chunk of text and take a deep dive and discuss, discuss it for a very long time and go into all the commentaries and really become an expert in this one small area. What we're going to do is take an overview of all of Pirkei Avot, all of this wonderful book of wisdom literature from the Jewish tradition, and we're going to take it one Mishnah at a time, starting in the very beginning, a very good place to start. So let's dive right into it. I'm using the edition of Pirkei Avot that's found in the back of my prayer book. My prayer book is the Sidur Sim Shalom, the 1985 edition, uh, currently out of print, unfortunately. And it has a slightly different numbering scheme from other editions, but it's good enough for our purposes. We're going to start with chapter one, uh, verse one. Before I get into that. I'm going to give you a little history of Pirkei Avot so you understand what it is that we're learning together. Uh, Pirkei Avot is a volume of what's called the Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah is a corpus of Jewish literature, of uh, rabbinic literature, because it was rabbis writing it. The Mishnah is actually a redaction, as I said earlier, of an oral tradition. So what happened was, uh, when the Jewish people lost the first temple in about the uh, 6th century uh, before the Common Era, we were taken into exile in Babylon, and we didn't have a temple to continue our religious practice. So 
many rabbis just got together and said, okay, let's, uh, let's study about the sacrifices. Let's study about Jewish law. And this is a way to keep us in the frame of mind so that someday when we build the second temple, uh, we'll know what to do. And so most of the Mishnah is a writing down of that oral argument that went back and forth of people trying to interpret the Torah, interpret what God wanted from them uh, as best they could. And this oral tradition extends all the way back to when we were given the Torah. As the, as the Torah itself says, uh, God gave the Torah to the Jewish people through Moses on Mount Sinai. So if you can picture, uh, Moses sitting on the top of this mountain, taking dictation, as it were, from God, and God saying, okay, write this down. Here's all these things. Thou shalt not this, thou shalt that. And then Moses would ask questions. Is we, you know, you don't really explain this part to God. You know, the Bible is actually a pretty concise book leaving lots of room for interpretation, lots of the imagination, lots of things to ask questions about. So Moses would ask these questions and God would say, okay, here, let me explain this to you, but don't write this part down because then, you know, they're going to want to put this book in a scroll and it's going to be a million miles long. So just write down what I tell you to write down. But here I'll explain it to you, Moses, what I mean by that. You know, for example, it says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Don't cook a goat. I want to make be perfectly clear about that. Don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. It says that three times in the Torah, actually. And Moses said, okay, why does it say that three times? Does it mean three different things? Um, can I cook a cow in a goat's milk? Can I cook a goat in cow's milk? Can I cook a kid in milk that's not its, mo- its own mother, but some other goat's milk? And so God breaks it down for him. And He's like, okay, don't write that part down, but tell Joshua, like tell your second in command and have him tell the person after him and hand it down that way orally. And it's a little bit like Fight Club. Like the first rule about Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of this oral tradition is it has to stay oral. Don't write it down. And we kept that rule for approximately... 1500 years until uh, we lost the second temple and all the arguments that they'd had after the first temple uh, were kind of memorized and those arguments got added to this oral tradition. And when it came time for the second temple to be destroyed, there was lots of upheaval in Jerusalem. Um, it was basically the Romans squashing a rebellion. A lot of uh, scholars got killed and they said, you know what? I know we have a rule about not writing this stuff down, but if we don't, we're going to lose it because the guys who remember this stuff are dropping like flies. So let's break our rule. Let's write this stuff down. And this all happened in the first and second century of the common era, um, you know, approximately year zero to 120 or so. And we've had it in a written form ever since. Now, what sparked after that was um, a series of arguments that became its own oral tradition as commentary on the Mishnah. That got written down later. It's called the Gemara. You put them together, you've got the Talmud. Um, but all of the Talmud and all of the Mishnah are writing down of uh, a record of oral arguments. But these oral arguments go all the way back through time to the first discussion between God and Moses as to 
what God's intention was for the interpretation of the words of the Torah. And the first Mishnah talks about that. Uh, you know, you start the book with kind of the source of where the book came from. And it goes a little something like this. Chapter one, Mishnah one, Moses received the Torah from God at Sinai. Remember that part? Just talked about that. He transmitted it to Joshua. As I said before, Joshua was his second in command. Joshua transmitted it to the elders, right? These are the elders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The elders transmitted it to the prophets. These are the people who were the, the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, all those guys. So with me so far, Moses to, or God to Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to uh, what they call the Ansheh Knesset Haggadol, the, the members of the great assembly. And the great assembly is this body that was responsible for writing all this stuff down. Uh, also, the body that was largely responsible for our modern prayer service, because they were working at a time where we had just lost the temple, the second temple, just lost our primary uh, connection to God, if you will, our primary means of connecting to holiness, our primary means of of uh, seeking atonement for imperfections and mistakes and sins and things like that. So we just lost our whole um, main religious mode of life. And these these rabbis said, okay, we don't have a temple anymore. What are we going to do? Well, we can pray and we can study and we can create services for people to get together and have community while communing with holiness while speaking to God, asking for forgiveness, saying thank you. That's also a nice thing to pray about is to say thank you to God for stuff. So anyway, it goes from Moses all the way over the space of about 1500 years or so to these men of the great assembly. And they wrote down this Mishnah. So I'm inserting commentary as we go here. Um, And these people of the great assembly, it says formulated three precepts. And these are they. The first one, be cautious in rendering a decision. The second, rear many students. And the third, build a fence to protect the Torah. Now, before we get into uh, discussing these precepts, I want to go back to this line of transmission that we talked about. And this is important because it relates to you, listener, seeker, and it relates to me and the conversation that we are having right now. Because the first thing it does in Pirkei Avot is it grounds the learning that we're going to do into this line of transmission, this chain of tradition that goes all the way back from this text that we're studying right now to its source, which is an original conversation between God and Moses. And so even this studying that we're doing right now, the actual words in this book, um, are a part of a chain. They're a part of a holy tradition of transmission of ethics and wisdom and a guide to a holy life. 
And ever since we had this text written down, rabbis and their students have continued to discuss this text throughout the generations of the last 2,000 years, even up to today. Rabbis taught this material to me, and now by means of this podcast, I'm sharing this information with you, and so you are the latest link in this chain of sharing wisdom in a community that goes all the way back to Moses and God. So lest you think that I'm just passing out trivia, lest you think that I'm just uh, teaching something that I think is kind of cool and you might think it's cool too, hope you do. And it's not just that. We're engaging in a holy conversation and the whole history of that holy conversation and this podcast, this discussion right now and any questions that you ask me about it through email or Twitter or whatever, this conversation is a part of a much larger conversation, right? It's not just you and me seeker. This is a piece of a puzzle that circles back about 3,500 years in history. We are just the latest stewards of that discussion. And God willing, you're going to share this with somebody else. You're going to go from the student to that next teacher of the next generation of students. It doesn't stop with you. It doesn't have to. And so you are now, by virtue of listening to these words that I'm saying, part of a chain of tradition going back to Moses and God and God's people all the way back to Abraham, which goes all the way back another 20 generations to the very first human beings. This is the game we're playing, kids. This is the context that we are in. So I say that I'm not trying to scare you, but for me, I'm like, I'm getting really emotional about this because what we're doing right now is a part of something that's way bigger than either of us. And that makes it holy. That makes it important. Um, and I hope you feel that. So that's the piece of this Mishnah that's on the transmission, that's on this continuous mode of study that's ancient and yet very relevant to today. Even these precepts, uh, we'll get back into that. Be cautious in rendering a decision. Always a good idea, right? Don't be rash. Don't jump into anything. Don't uh, rush to judgment of other people, right? Always be willing to listen to all sides and give people the benefit of the doubt. Be decisive, yes, but take your time in making that decision. The next one was rear many students. As I said, I'm part of this chain. I'm handing some of this stuff over to you and you become part of this chain as well. And then you can pass this wisdom on to other people. One of the main reasons I do this podcast is because it allows me to scale this teaching to a much wider audience to reach more people who can then in turn reach people on their own. If you just take a link to this podcast and share it, you are creating students of this material. And finally, build a fence to protect the Torah. 
this is a, a deep concept uh, in the Talmud and in the Mishnah about how we approach Jewish law, how we approach this guide that God gave us in the Torah. We don't, how do, we, how do I put this? We don't play the ball too close to the fence, right? Um, we don't split hairs, although there's a lot of hair splitting that goes on in the Talmud, like slicing the law really finely and looking at extreme cases and, you know, what, you know is, does it apply to this? Does it apply to that? You know, how far can I push this before I'm breaking the law? The idea is that the Torah is this great gift from God. This is a guide to life for a free people, people who had just been released from generations of slavery in Egypt. You know, they bust out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're like, cool, I can do whatever I want. I can, you know, go to bed whenever I want, wake up late, eat sugar cereal for breakfast. You know, that's what, that's what little kids think freedom is. You know, I don't know rules, right? I can do whatever the heck I want. So the Torah was given uh, approximately seven weeks later to say, okay, you're a free people, um, but staying up late and sleeping in and eating sugared cereal uh, and coveting wives and all that stuff that's in the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, it sounds like fun, but I think you need a guide so that you can make the best of the freedom that you have. If you can do anything in the world, what should you do? And here's a book, right? Here's a guide to that right action. And because we take these rules and this guide and this wisdom so seriously, um, sometimes we'll take the strict requirements of the law and kind of put a buffer around it a little bit. The primary example of that, uh, the very first discussion in the Mishnah is, okay, what time should I say the bedtime Shema, right? It says in the in the Shema, in this portion of the book of Deuteronomy, um, you should say, teach these words to your children, you should teach these commandments, you should pass this wisdom on, you should uh, recite these words when you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. And so, again, taking things very literally, the rabbi said, okay, uh, when I lie down, uh, I should say these words. What does that mean? Does I have to say them uh, literally when I lie down? Is it, no, you should say them like at nighttime, right? Nighttime, the time when people lie down. And so they ask, okay, what's nighttime? Like, when's, when's my deadline here? And they say, well, I should probably say it by midnight. Uh, and then there's another rabbi who says, you know what? Um, Midnight is a good idea, but at the very latest, you should say them before the sun comes up in the morning. And there's an example of uh, this rabbi's sons come home from a drinking party. It's like it's like three in the morning, and they say, "Oh gosh, pops, we forgot to say the words we're supposed to say. Uh, can we go to bed now, or do we still have to say these words, or have we miss our chance?" He says, "You, you know, if, if it's not dawn yet, you still have to say these things." But why does the why do the other rabbis say midnight? Because we're putting a fence around the Torah. You know, you should really try to say them by midnight in case you fall asleep. You won't say, okay, I could I have until midnight, I'm just gonna have dinner and maybe a couple of glasses of wine, and then boom, you fall asleep and you fell asleep at midnight, you wake up at three AM and you're like, Oh no, I didn't say it. You have, strictly speaking, until dawn, but you should really try to do it by midnight. That's called offense around the Torah, is that we don't play the ball so close to the fence. We don't just stick to the letter of the law, but we also try to adhere to its spirit 
as well. That's how serious this stuff is. As I said, we are links in a chain that goes back um, for thousands of years. And so we should take care uh, to preserve its integrity by building a fence around it, protecting it so that it keeps us far from any kind of uh, transgression. Or, you know, if you play things too close to the fence, if you make a little mistake, you can blow it, right? You can really uh, not live up to your best intention there. That's the first Mishnah of Pirkei Avot. Uh, I invite your questions about this. Uh, I'd really like to make this into more of a Q&A show. Um, please reach out to me, rabbi at wisdomcommunitypodcast.com. That's a good way to connect with me. Uh, you can also hit me up on social media. My social links are in the show notes, and you can ask me questions in public. You can tweet me, Rabbi Carrier, that's at Rabbi Carrier uh, on the Twitter, uh, or you can send me private messages through email or private messages through Facebook. And whatever questions you have, I will do my level best to answer them as quickly as possible. If it's a question that I think other people could benefit from, uh, I may, I'd really like to put it on this podcast and, and let as many people learn as possible. And here is an example. I'm going to reach back into my mailbag to answer a question that was sent to me by my friend Kevin a little while ago. Kevin asks, did you always have a connection with God as a child, teen, adult? Question mark. So uh, excellent question, Kevin, totally fair. Uh, I ask you guys stuff all the time. So uh, this is this one's actually kind of personal, but um, but here goes, right? Did you always have a connection with God? I'm going to say no, uh, absolutely not. There was a, a long period of my life where I had no connection, no inkling, no uh, real belief in God whatsoever. Uh, as a child, I had more of a childlike faith. Well, let me let me back up. Um, so, if you don't know my story, I was not born a Jewish person. Uh, I was born into what I'll call kind of a mixed Protestant family. My mother uh, went to a Lutheran church. My father uh, went to a Baptist church, and they got together. And my mom won, and, and I was baptized as a Lutheran. Don't ask me which kind of Lutheran. I know there are a couple of kinds uh, of Lutherans. Uh, I don't know, but um, I was a part, uh, my family was a part of the Lutheran church until I was about 10 or 11 years old. We moved to a town that didn't have a Lutheran church. The closest one was like an hour away. Uh, so we became Methodists because my dad liked uh, the preacher at the Methodist church. And so we were part of that. And I was in youth group and I would go to church frequently. Uh, mostly I would uh, doodle on the programs that they passed out. My dad would give me a pen. He loved to take notes uh, during services and notes on people's sermons and write his own thoughts down. And uh, he would give me a pen and I would draw stick figures having battles and stuff like that. Nevertheless, I really felt like this was part of my social life. I got involved. I was an acolyte, which meant I lit candles during the services and wore like a little white robe and stuff. Um, and then I went to high school and I continued with youth group there, uh, mostly out of uh, social interest. As I often tell people, I was in the youth group for the cookies and the girls and the youth group in the high school got to take field trips and stuff, got to get, uh, get out of town. 
And I thought it was great fun. Uh, but at some point somebody asked me what my personal faith was all about. And I'm like, dude, I'm here for the cookies, right? I'm here for, uh, the chance to, to, to get out of town. I really never felt as, as much as a, it was a part of my social fabric growing up. I never felt connected to it, uh, in a theological way at all. Um, and Christianity was sort of a social construct for me and I'm not knocking it. Um, I'm not knocking faithful members of my family and communities that I was in. It was just never stuck. And then at some point I read a book called the master and Margarita Mikhail Bulkagov. It was a Russian novel of the early 20th century. And, uh, I won't give you a summary of that novel, but it really kind of blew up, uh, my concept of Christianity. It made it seem like it was, um, a bit of a frame job. It made it seem like, uh, Jesus was this guy that was set up and, uh, was just interested in teaching people wisdom and kindness and all these people who ascribed, uh, holiness to him, um, had their own agenda. And so that, you know, between that and being, having a very mathematical, scientifical, analytical bent, uh, just took me out of the game, took me out. I just, I did, I, I felt like I was too smart to believe in God. That's how I, and, and, you know, ask any teenager, they know more than anybody else in the world. Um, to this day, I believe I knew most when I was a teenager and my own teenagers will bear that out. I think they feel exactly the same way. And for the most part, they're right. They're actually way smarter than I was at that age. Fast forward. Um, I meet a nice Jewish girl and we decide to start a family together. Um, she doesn't really insist that I become Jewish to be a part of that family, but, um, we're raising our kids as Jews. And a few years into that, I say, you know what? I really want to be more involved in my own kids' education. I really want to be involved in their upbringing. I know they're going to ask questions, and I don't want to just like say, ask your mother. I don't want to leave their religious education to other members of my family. I really want to be a part of it. And so I said, I'll, I'll, I'll take a class. I'll take a class about Judaism just so I know what's up about this religion, this culture that my kids are a part of. And I took the class and, uh, I loved everything that I was learning. Everything that I was learning about Judaism seemed way more in line with how I saw the world than the faith that I grew up with. And I get through the entire class and it's actually a class that has a track toward conversion, but I thought, okay, that's off limits for me. I'm an atheist, right? I can't possibly believe in this God. And my experience with my prior religion was that that's kind of a sine qua non. Like if you don't believe in the guy that we're talking about, you know, everything else is bogus. So I said to my wife that, um, I love everything about this, but I don't believe in God at all. And she said, that's okay. A lot of us don't. And so I thought, all right, well, maybe I can be Jewish anyway. And I talked to the rabbis of the Beit Dean. That's the, the court of three rabbis who question you and ask if you're sincere about your intention to become part of the Jewish people. And not a one of them asked me 
about my connection to God. What they did ask is about my loyalty to this people. And so I said, that loyalty is without question. I have sons, right? If something bad happens to the Jewish people or something as bad is happening to my sons, a hundred percent, I am there, right? No question. And they said, that's good enough for us. And that's when I became Jewish. And this was about 16, 17 years ago at this point. And then God kind of grew on me. Right. I think I had this, I I read this brilliant uh, quote that was something like, you know, if you don't believe in God, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Because chances are, I don't believe in that God either. And this just blew my mind wide open. This just called into question because the God that I didn't believe in was a particular image of God that I had been taught from my youth, but that wasn't and couldn't be all there was to God. And so what I started to piece together was this idea of a God that was one that I could believe in. And Judaism seems so much more open to that idea of an expansive understanding of God. First off, this sort of ineffability, this idea you cannot make, like you're literally forbidden from making a statue of God because it couldn't in no way capture what God's really all about. This was a real innovation of Judaism on the entire world and certainly for me. And so at the end of it, um, I had this experience of God as a guide, as a, um, you know, almost a, a presence that was looking out for me because in my experience of life, there's a lot of stupid stuff that I did that I could have died from and didn't. Um, a lot of craziness in high school, a lot of uh, fixes that I got into at work. You know, things things shouldn't be going as well for me as they were. It's not without the realm of possibility that there was somebody looking out for me and somebody, you know, kind of guiding my steps to a choice that at the time seemed totally random, but turned out to save my life, right? To save my family. And the idea that there was something there that was stronger than me, um, that I could count on when I wasn't strong enough was very appealing. And the more I got to know about a God that is not this punishing, vengeful, capricious uh, actor in human history, while at the same time everyone is calling this entity omnibenevolent, omnipresent, um, omniscient. You know, how could a God that is all-knowing and all-good permit terrible things to happen. Um, Instead, I saw this God of the Hebrew Bible is never described as omni anything. That's a Greek innovation, right? Um, But more uh, a powerful being that cares about us and doesn't make us cry, like isn't in the business of making us suffer, but is there to suffer with us, is there to cry with us when we cry and to teach us to cry with each other. 
So this is a long answer of my own personal history, my own uh, personal theology uh, to answer Kevin's question more directly. Um, did I always have a connection with God? When I was a kid, religion was my social life, right? This is where all the kids at school went when we were in school. Um, but God was never that big a factor in it. As a teen, uh, God just wasn't present for me at all. This was a period where the world made perfect sense to me without God in it and made zero sense to me if God was involved with it because of the image of God that I'd been given. But as an adult, um, when I just, <laughs> as a student of statistics, I mean, I studied, uh, studied finance in graduate school and realized that my survival was an outlier right? That my life had been so blessed, uh, I knew could have been a random occurrence, but it just seemed to defy reason (laughs) that it was a random occurrence. Um, that's when I got closer and closer. And as I went through seminary and, uh, really reinforced this idea that I've got this thing that's bigger than myself, that's more important than me, that has a plan that's more important than any plan that I could come up with and is available to me for strength when I have to face stuff that is just beyond my strength to face. Nevertheless, you know, as a grown up, sometimes you got to face stuff that you just don't feel strong enough for. And I have this extra resource to draw upon and this extra resource who has given me a guide to life that has improved my life enormously. I'll say now we're tight. <laughs> like now, uh, now I've got a God I can believe in. And so I teach about it as much as I can. It's not going to connect with everybody, but I'll tell you, if you have this question about whether God is there or not, I'll just ask you the same question that was posed to me. If you say you don't believe in God, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Because chances are when I'm talking about God, it's not that God either. So that was a long personal answer to a very short question. Uh, I don't know if it's instructive for you. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Like, have you, do you have a a connection to God? Do you have a connection to something else? Um, you know, I, I, I've heard that in recovery movements and AA and things like that, it depends on the belief and trust in this higher power. And I know plenty of atheist alcoholics, right? Who don't have uh, a traditional conception of God and yet draw upon something that's stronger than themselves to help them through a very difficult time. So write me back, share your experiences, um, just as, or more important, share your questions because I really thrive. Uh, I mean, I could teach peer K votes all day. I could teach you all the things uh, that I know and all the things that I want you to know. But what I really want to do is teach to those things that you are interested in and teach to those things that you're passionate about or that you have burning questions about. So hit me up uh, by email rabbi at wisdom community podcast.com. You can tweet me at Rabbi Carrier. You can see me on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Rabbi Carrier. Go to the Wisdom Community Podcast website. Um, all sorts of ways to get in touch with me. I thrive on 
the questions of my students, the questions of seekers, and I will answer them as best and quickly and <laughs> will try succinctly uh, as I can in the future. Thanks for listening to this. This has been a, a longer episode, uh, and I hope the beginning of a much more frequent uh, podcast schedule so that we can get through peer care vote together so that I can answer your questions. And I'd really like it if we could connect on a nearly daily basis, um, in some, some way, shape or form, because the work of building wisdom is best done as daily work, at least in some small capacity. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, I hope you're well. I hope to talk to you again very soon. Be well, seeker. Seeker, thank you for joining me today for this Wisdom Community Podcast. I invite you to join our community by visiting wisdomcommunitypodcast.com where you can sign up for our email list to receive updates on future programs and opportunities to seek wisdom and seek community together. If you have a particular question for me, please feel free to email me at the following address, rabbi at wisdomcommunitypodcast.com. Until we speak again, I bless you with strength on your journey in seeking wisdom and seeking community. Be well.